0: our children can slide out to Transformation Station and hear about the
1: great truths of God using the Gospel Project curriculum. Let me encourage you as they slide out uh, to grab a copy of God's Word or to turn your Bible on if you're using a phone or iPad or whatever you're using there. And let's go to John chapter 5. If you're using the Bibles that we provide, that's page 890, John chapter chapter 5. My name is John Chastain. I serve as one of the pastors at Redemption Hill. And uh, as many of you know, I am a huge college football fan. I know, I know most of you only care about the NFL, or at least that's how New Englanders roll. But I played college football at Appalachian State, a small college in North Carolina. Um, but I grew up a huge, and I mean huge, Clemson Tiger fan. Um, we got any Tigers? Okay, we got a few Tigers uh, out there. Um, I, I still pull for ASU. In fact, um, Appalachian State, where I, where I played, they, they, won, they went to a bowl this year, their first ever bowl, and won it. And so and they had a great year. But Clemson, if you don't know, they are number one in the country, and tomorrow night, they play for the national championship. A little, little history here. The last time Clemson won a national championship was 1981. It was the year that I was born. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying like there's, you know, a little, little history there, some some connection. But when, this past week, um, you know, my, my love for college football, obviously, a good thing can become a God thing if it becomes a great thing in your life. And so um, I've been just asking this question, like, what's at stake? Like, I mean, I get excited about college football, and, and there was a lot of lessons that I learned personally through college sports, through sports in general, about teamwork and hard work and perseverance. Um, but man, what's really at stake? I mean, whoever wins tomorrow night is probably going to receive a trophy that looks something like this. You know, the the coaches are, and players are going to receive a nice ring that they can walk around and, and they can show off. Um, they're going to get accolades. They're going to get praise. You know, fan bases are going to be able to, to brag. You know, I'll have, I'll have some bragging rights over like people like Will Pope and Amanda and Eric Price and, and, and some others um, in the room. Just kidding. Love you guys. Um, and, and these are all really cool and fun. But well, i me just step back for a second, and, and I'm a thinker. I like to just think big picture about things. And eventually, this is all going to wear off. I mean, within a few months, people are going to be talking about what? Who's projected to be first next year? I mean, does anybody, just pause for a second, does anybody know who won the national championship last year? Christy Carey, don't speak. Haley Schramm, be quiet. She's not here today. Ohio State. So some of you know, but we could go back. What, what
0: about two years? Three years? Ten years?
1: Fifteen years? I mean, we could keep going back long enough, and you get my point. The point is, is it's fun, it's exciting. We can gather, and, and we can celebrate and have a fun time. But in the grand picture of things, I mean, we're talking about a small little little point that in the grand eternity, man, doesn't really mean a whole lot. And what I'd like for you to ask today is what's at stake concerning the identity of Jesus Christ? Something so much larger than a national championship. And what we're going to see today is that what's at stake is life, eternal life. Now, let me set the stage for you. Last week, Tanner did a great job of looking at these first few verses in John 5, one of the signs that Jesus did. And here's what happened. Jesus' healing of this invalid on the Sabbath sets the stage for us to rightly understand one of the greatest Christological discourses in all of Scripture. Today, we're gonna look at John 5, 18 through 47, and, for, and, and, and outside of verse 18, we go through 19 to 47, and it is a sustained, continued defense by Jesus. There's no pauses. He just goes, you look at the interaction with Nicodemus and, and the Samaritan woman, and there's like a dialogue. This is a defense by Christ, sustained, arguing for his identity as God. But what sets the stage is what we looked at last week. Jesus goes to this pool. There was an invalid. He had been there for 38 years. Just pause and think about that for a second. In 38 years, and Jesus says,
0: stand, take up your bed, and
1: walk. Man, I know that like, we quickly just skim over that, but just let that sink in for a second. 38 years, and all Jesus does is he says, stand up. He speaks with his powerful words, and this man is completely healed. It says, At once he stood and he was healed. But right after that, John gives us a parenthetical comment, and he says, This now that day was the Sabbath. Uh oh. Here's the problem according to the Jewish rulers, It wasn't lawful for this man to take up his bed because they had created a law that forbade forbade people to move an object on the Sabbath. Now, just to be clear, there's no biblical scriptural command concerning this. It was solely a law of the Jews. So what's happened is Jesus is accused not of breaking the Sabbath himself, but of enticing someone else to break the Sabbath, to sin by issuing a command that would have caused that person to break the law. I mean, just to be clear, Jesus' command of the man to rise and walk was not in conflict with Scripture, but the Jewish tradition. So according to the Pharisees, Jesus is a lawbreaker, and it's Jesus' response... To the Pharisees, when he's accused of breaking the Sabbath, that prepares the way for this awesome Christological defense that we're going to explore today. And this is what he says in verse 17. Just reviewing from last week. Jesus said, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am
0: working. On the surface, this
1: doesn't seem all that alarming But implied here, there is a killer truth. Jesus is claiming to be God. Look at verse 18. John tells us this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is the first instance in the Gospel of John that we have reference to the Jewish rulers, not just persecuting Jesus, but now it says they're seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their tradition, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And why did this so tick off the Pharisees? The consensus among the Jews was that God did work constantly, even on the Sabbath, but he's not guilty of breaking the Sabbath because the whole earth is his domain. So it's cool. God can work on the Sabbath, and he's not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. But what Jesus does is places his own Sabbath working activity on the same level as God. In essence, this is what Jesus says. If God is above the Sabbath, so am I. And the only way this can be true is if the same factors applied to God also apply to Jesus. He's either above the law like God, or the entire universe is his like God. And the implications of Jesus' statement were extremely clear to the Pharisees. What do they say? He was even calling God his own Father, making himself. Equal with God. Jesus posed a threat to their monotheistic belief in one God. In fact, this charge of blasphemy is what ends up taking Jesus to the cross. Now, we all know Jesus came to lay down his life. But as we look at the charges that condemned him, it was the charge of blasphemy. He was making himself equal with God. Thus, Jesus' explanation of his own work on the Sabbath was even more offensive than his efforts to heal on the Sabbath. And as a result, the controversy of the Sabbath actually takes a back seat. As we're going to look in these verses today, we don't really see much about the Sabbath. What we see is a defense answering this question, who is Jesus? And here's the irony. According to the Pharisees, Jesus is guilty as charged because he claims to be equal with God. And yet, as we will see, he is completely innocent. So what follows in verses 19 through 47 is an uninterrupted defense by Jesus of his divinity and equality with God. But before we jump in, let's just step back. And this is a question I'm going to ask us throughout the sermon today. So what? What's at stake? Why does it matter? What's the big deal if Jesus is God? Now, as we, to answer that question, I'll just show you the breakdown of where we're headed today, we have two sections, verses 19 through 30. Jesus is going to give his own self testimony to claims of divinity and equality with God. And then the second section in verses 31 through 47, Jesus is not going to give a self-witness. He's going to point to the witness of others that affirm his divinity and equality with God. And so I just want to give you a foretaste of what they're going to argue. Let's look at a few of these verses. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Look at verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then look at verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that it is in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's the point of this whole text, is that we should hear and believe the truth about Jesus and experience eternal life in him now. The reason this matters and what's at stake is life. And I know, I mean, I don't know everybody is seated out here, but my guess is that, man, I know we've got some members of Redemption Hill, we've got some regular attenders, but, man, my guess is there's probably somebody out here even today that's, I mean, I'm exploring this, this Jesus guy. And today is a great day to just sit in and listen. And what I want you to just see is that, man, there's a lot at stake. And it's not just an argument, a theological argument. It's, it's an argument that, that matters to your life. Because what's being argued here is that if this is true, well, then to truly experience life now and forever is only found in Jesus. And so if you miss this, You
0: miss life. So if you want to experience
1: true life now and forevermore, then first of all, looking at this first section, you must hear and believe the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. We're going to go through verse 30. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me.
0: Just think about this. How
1: does Jesus respond to their accusa- accusation of blasphemy? When he says, my father is working into now and I'm working, it says they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. This would have been the perfect time for Jesus to say, whoa, hold up. You've completely misunderstood me. I'm not making myself equal with God. But that is not what he does. You guys see that? This would have been like, I know there's a lot of, you know, man, who really is Jesus? Did he really claim to be God? This would have been a great opportunity for him to set the record straight. Guys, hey, I'm not God. Not only is that not what he does, he makes it extremely clear that what he's claiming is he is God. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Hey guys, in case there's any confusion, whatever God does, I can do. Do you see him stepping back from these claims? No, I see that he's raising it and clarifying it. Hey, in case there's any confusion, if God can do it, I can do it. And this sets the trajectory of this Christological defense by Christ. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see five things that Jesus claims to show his equality and divinity as God. The first one is this, Jesus does everything that God does. Whatever making himself equal with God might mean, what we see here, first of all, is it doesn't mean complete or partial independence from his father. Because we could read this as Jesus is a competing God, another God, a separate God. And he's saying, no, that's not the case because he starts off here in verse 19. Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He's going to repeat that. Look down in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Going back to 19, he says, but only what I see the Father doing. Jesus is not another God. He's not a competing God. He works as the one God in perfect unity with his Father who governs everything. But Jesus also makes this clear. If Jesus can do whatever the Father does, he must be as great and as divine as the Father. And the reason Jesus can do everything that the Father does is because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. You see that there? Verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. One of the greatest descriptions or clarifying descriptions of the Trinity or who God is, is not that God is a creator, but that God is a father who from all eternity past has been loving in relationship with the Trinity, the son and the spirit. And so that love describes this relationship. The father loves the son. He's doing nothing but what he's been doing for all of eternity. And as we're going to see as we go through John, the son loves the father and it's displayed in his perfect obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. But secondly, we see this. Not only does he do everything that God does, we're going to see other things that flow from that. Well, if that's true, Jesus raises the dead and gives life just like God does. Look at verse 21. For as the father raises the dead, and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We see this again in verse 24. Those who hear my word have eternal life. Look at verse 25. And hour's coming, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 26, for the Father has life in himself. He's granted to the Son that he would have life in himself. And then verse 29. Those who hear his voice come out. And they come to the resurrection of life. Jesus here is not presenting himself as just a mere instrument of God. Jesus says, as God has life in himself, and as we looked at a few weeks ago, God, we see in the Old Testament, is the fountain of life. Jesus says, I have life in myself. And he gives it to whomever he wills. This is a divine attribute. As we think about this life that Jesus offers and this resurrection that he has power to do, we see it in two parts. First, the life that Jesus gives is accessible in part now. Verse 24 is stunning. I want you to go there. Just read it again slowly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. That word has. What is that?
0: Am I know what tense that is? It's present. It's not. You
1: will have eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him. Has present eternal life. He and, and in case you were been curious and maybe he wasn't clear, keep reading. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Man, here's a great reality for those who hear and believe in Jesus. Life is not just something that we anticipate one day. The promise is of life now. Does anybody experience this life now? Can I get an amen? I got an amen down here. This is the promise of the gospel, that that we're not just waiting and enduring for something that's in the future, but even right now, we have in a very real sense the life that Jesus came to bring.
0: It's so real that Jesus
1: can say, if you've believed, you do not come to judgment, and in fact, you've already passed from death to life. I mean, just, just rest in that, because I know for all of us, I and mean, probably when we lay in bed at night or, I mean, when we think about your fears, what probably leads to a lot of fears? I mean, it's death. This is a great verse just to crush that. Death for the believer is not something that we fear, because according to Christ, I've already passed into life. And so death is going to come one day to all of us, and my body's going to be put in the grave, put in the grave, but I'm going to continue experiencing life. And one day, the second part of this is that this resurrection life will be consummated at his return. And that's what we see in verse 25 and 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, verse 29, and they will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life. We see a foretaste of this, a picture in John chapter 11. We haven't got there yet, but the last sign Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead as a picture that not only is he coming to heal people like the invalid for 38 years, but he's coming and to conquer death and bring resurrection life. And his own resurrection fulfills that. So, I mean, just let me get your eyes here real quick. Don't let you look at your scripture. Why don't you just let this truth sink in? If you were in Christ. Romans 8:1 is true: "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ." It's none. For, for, for the believer, it's if, as if the judgment has already happened, and I've passed through, and I've been acquitted. And the guilty sentence was put on Christ when he died, and I have been given life. So, so in, in one very real sense, I don't walk around as a believer in, in guilt or in shame or in fear. I walk around in Christ. It is who I am. He is a good, good father, and he loves me, and he has justified me through faith in Christ. Guys, this is good news. This is is at the heart of what it means to live the gospel-centered life, is that we live not trying every day to earn the favor of God, but because the Father has already declared, you're not guilty, you've passed into life. Enjoy life in me.
0: The third truth we see here
1: is that Jesus judges with the judgment of God. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Let me just pause here real quick. If we were to go through the Old Testament, we would see very clearly that who is the judge? It is God. God is the judge of all the earth. You can see that as early as Genesis 18, verse 25. What's happening here? is that God has determined that this will be the direct task now for Jesus to judge. And it's not like Jesus is acting independent or separate from the Father in his judgment, because look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but who? the will of him who sent me. So Jesus' judgment is still in perfect unity with the Father, flowing from the Father's will. In verse 27, we see here one of the reasons that he's been given judgment, it says, and he's given authority to take you judgment because he is the Son of Man. Most likely, this is a reference to the Son of Man in Daniel, chapter 7, 13 and 14, the Ancient of Days. But additionally, Jesus has given authority to judge because of the revelation that he has shared primarily has been ignored and rejected. Now, let's make this clear. Jesus' primary function in coming to the earth was not judgment and condemnation. What was it? It was salvation. Go back. We just looked in John chapter 3, 16 and 17. He came not to bring condemnation. He bring that you might be saved. If you would believe in him, you would have eternal life. That is the primary, but one of the results of his coming is that not all receive him. And so judgment is inevitable. You may ask, what is his judgment based upon? We see that in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment the judgment of Christ is going to be contingent on what you do with
0: the word of Christ.
1: Now, there could be some confusion here in verse 29. We're just going to spend a few seconds here before we move on. Um, because in verse 29, we see here, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This on the surface seems to do what? Suggest that salvation is by works. Now, when you come to a scripture like this, you've got to be careful because anytime you isolate one scripture from the rest of all of scripture, that's where most heresies have come from. And so one of the, you know, encouragement as you read the Bible, as you've got to read it as in the context of everything else, in the Bible. So what we've just seen in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What we've seen right here in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes, we could jump ahead to chapter six. Um, and we're going to see In verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so what's happening here, Jesus is not contrasting salvation by works and salvation by faith. When he means here, those who have done good, those who have come to the light and love the light so that their deeds may be seen, they've been carried out in Christ. And those who have done evil are those who have rejected the light and who have loved darkness. And so, how do you, you show me your faith It's evidence in the fruit of your life so that those who genuinely believe is going to be evidence in a life of loving the light and following him. Fourth, Jesus is not only judging with the judgment of God, Jesus should be worshipped as God is worshipped. I don't have a ton of time to spend here, but we see in verse 23 a purpose uh, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Giving everything else Jesus has claimed, this claim should come as no surprise. Jesus has won with the father, not only in activity, but in honor. You guys see that? So if Jesus does everything that God does, then he should receive worship the way that God receives
0: worship. this is pretty exclusive, right? I'm just gonna take a a few minutes sidebar here.
1: Isn't it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way to God? I mean, he's being pretty clear here, right? You guys see this? If you do not honor the son, you do not honor the father. He's like, the only way to honor God would be to honor me. How could there just be one true faith? Or maybe you've heard somebody say, religious exclusivity is dangerous. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world today. Man, let's be honest. We don't like to think about our neighbor who doesn't follow Jesus, but is a super nice person who even serves his community and sacrifices for others. We don't like to think about him as dying and facing eternal judgment. As one author says, we'd rather give everyone a gold star for effort and celebrate our spiritual diversity. In short, we like
0: inclusivity.
1: One of my favorite guys that's really speaking in culture is Tim Keller. Helps us think a little bit. I don't have a ton of time to spend here, but I just want to share a few things. He says this. He says, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that the one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. Some are exclusive by saying Jesus is the only way. But many in our contemporary culture are exclusive by saying the only way to think about religions is that all lead to the same God. Or that there's no one way. That's an exclusive claim. So we're we're all being exclusive. We're just being exclusive in different ways. So how should a Christian respond to the exclusivity of Christ? Uh, I've shared here a quote from Jonathan Dotson that I think, man, hits on a number of great points. He says this, we tolerantly extend people the dignity of their own beliefs. We don't minimize the differences between religions. We honor them. The life of Christ produces in us true humility. You know what? Tim Keller says, I'm going to come right back to finish this quote, but he says there is a temptation in religion to lead to superiority, and we've all got to fight that, but the gospel doesn't lead us there because the gospel reminds us that salvation is by Faith, it is by grace. It is a gift. It is not something that we've earned. We have no right to boast in our Christianity or in superiority. So as Dotson says here,
0: the life of Christ produces in us
1: true humility, but it also produces in us true enlightenment. We've come to grasp grace that God works his way down to us, dies for our moral and religious failures, and offers us life. If this is true, we must lovingly, humbly try to persuade others to believe in Jesus, who alone offers the wonderful promise of the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. Now just, I mean, what's at stake here? If Jesus is the way to the Father, and if Jesus is the way to life, if, if those are true, how can we not be compelled to lovingly plead with people to come to find life? This is the impetus for why, as a church, gospel community mission, we want to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth, even amongst all the religions of the world, because we really believe that people aren't going to experience life now and forevermore until they meet Jesus. We really believe that. And so if you take anything from this quote, I think it would be this, lovingly and humbly. We do not do it with arrogance, and we proceed with humility and love. Five, Jesus' word should be received as the word of God. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs will hear his Voice in the same way that Jesus' word healed the invalid by the pool. His word brings eternal life. His voice is that is that which gives life to dry bones. In the back background here is Ezekiel thirty-seven. In this voice, and you have the dead that are rising to life. And our response is to hear. Have any of you heard someone
0: say, "My child doesn't listen very well"? Anybody heard that? What do we
1: mean? Man, they're they're not listening very well. What we mean by that is they're not doing what I'm telling them to do. They're not hearing with an attitude to obey. So when you see here in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes, it includes obedience. That if you truly hear, to truly hear would be to follow and obey. That is our response. So if you want to experience true life now forevermore, you must hear and believe the testimony of Christ. Second, we're going to look at this last section and wrap up. You must hear and believe the testimony of others. At this point, Jesus points out that if the burden of evidence supporting his claims rests solely on his own testimony, it's insufficient. Look at verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that he has to have testimony from others, but we're the same way. If somebody's going to be taken to court, it can't just be by hearsay, right? What do you do when you go to court? You've got witnesses, right? I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, probably when when Henry goes and, and he goes and plays golf, and he comes back, and he's telling us, man, this great golf game, I'm just like, did anybody see it? Like, you know, can you really verify that you made the shots that, that you said you made? Or, um, you, you know, my friends that, that like to fish, and they're talking about this huge fish, and like, no, I mean, I was, I was out on the boat by myself. Nobody was there to see it, but it was huge. Like, we ask for witnesses, you probably can relate to a story right now where, man, like, man, I don't believe what they're saying. Nobody saw that. Jesus, he's saying, you want further evidence. Listen to this. And this also follows the pattern in the Old Testament. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says nothing, the, the truthfulness of someone's claims had to be established by two or three witnesses. So here are the witnesses that Jesus lists. First, John the Baptist verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And just briefly, just to look back, and we could go read the first few chapters of John, but John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. I met him a few weeks ago. I must decrease and he must increase. John was a pointer, he was a lamp shining, but he wasn't the light. He was pointing to the true light. And so Jesus is saying, Look at the testimony of John. He's coming, he's bearing witness. Not only that he's the Lamb of God at Jesus' baptism, that he is the Spirit-anointed Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 34. But second, Jesus says there's another witness, his own works. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. Now, In essence, all of these are witnesses that are coming from the Father. Who sent John the Baptist? The Father. How did Jesus do these works? The Father. Who wrote scripture? We're gonna see later. The Father. So, in the bigger picture, it's man, the Father is verifying my testimony. But he said, look at these works I've done. I've turned water to wine. Look at the cleansing of the temple. Look at the healing of the official son. Look at the healing of this invalid for 38 years. They testify. Nobody does this. These are divine works. Jesus' works are divine. They are the very works of God. But then he makes it clear, "The Father, third, the Father testifies about me." Look at verse 37. "And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, His voice? you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Man, this is striking. He doesn't give us the specifics of what this father has borne witness about him. It's probably a general reference to all of God's revealing work from the very beginning that is pointing to Jesus. But here's what's striking. I mean, Jesus makes it clear. What does he say to them, to the religious leaders? You have never heard his voice, unlike Moses. You have never seen his form, let's say, unlike Jacob, who saw his form. And his word does not dwell in you, let's say, like a Joshua or like the psalmist, whose word dwelled in their heart. What he's saying here is that these things are not true because you reject me. And this is stunning, guys. Why such harsh statements? This is it. If from the very beginning, God has been testifying and pointing and preparing for Jesus, if you reject Jesus, what does that reveal?
0: You do not know God.
1: If anyone rejects Jesus, it reveals that they don't know God, for he is the very Word of God revealing the glory of God. Jesus' opponents had not truly grasped the point of all previous revelation. And we see that clear in verses 39 through 44 where the fourth testimony concerning Jesus are the scriptures. In verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. There's probably this verse and a few others that have been instrumental in forming the way I see the scriptures. I am just want to go back, because I, I hope you didn't skip over verse 39. I'm just going to read it slowly, and I want you to just let this sink in. You search the scriptures. What are the scriptures? He's talking about the Old Testament here. The New Testament had not been formed yet. You search the scriptures. All they had was the Old Testament. You search the Old Testament because you think that is in them, you have eternal life, and it is they. What does they refer here to? The scriptures, the Old Testament. It is they that bear witness about me. Did you get that? They bear witness about me. The purpose of the scriptures were to testify concerning Jesus Christ from the very beginning. And I don't think Jesus here is just referring to a few select verses in the Old Testament. He's referring to the trajectory of the whole Bible. It has been and has been and will forever be about Jesus In some sense, all the stories of Scripture must in some way be connected to the story, the meta story of God's redemption found in Christ. If you don't believe me, go read Acts. And go just look and say, how do they try to convince people about Jesus? What are they using? They're going to the Old Testament. Go read Paul. What is Paul arguing from? He's going back to the Old Testament to support his claims about Christ. And the past week has been fun in my house with some of the Christmas presents the kids got. One of the Christmas presents the kids got was a game called Clue. Anybody played it. So Clue's a a mystery game, and the goal is to try to figure out who did it. Like Mustard did it with the rope in the bedroom, you know, that type of game. And so you're asking questions as it comes your turn to try to figure out your goal is to finally make an accusation on solving the riddle. Here's the deal. Jesus is the riddle to the mystery of the Old Testament. As we come to Jesus, he's saying, all of that is about me. I am the Lamb of God. I am the temple. I am the high priest. I am the fulfillment of the Sabbath. You won't rest. Rest is found in me. The blood that was shed at the Passover, yeah, that's a picture of my blood that shed on the cross. You get it? Everything from Genesis up through Revelation is about Jesus. And if you don't read the Bible that way, Jesus says, you don't get the point of the Scriptures. Man, if, you, if this is new to you, you're like, man, I want to go back and, and start reading Genesis and Exodus in, in a way that points to Jesus. I'll give you a, a few resources. One is a, a free one and a simple one called the story. I mean, it's basically arguing there's one story and all the scriptures. But another one on our resource table is a book called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible that goes from Genesis to Revelation and shows that, look, there's not a bunch of different stories competing with one another. There's one story. And for those of you that are contemplating Jesus, I wanna say this. I believe that this is one of the strongest arguments, one of the strongest defenses for Christianity. You explain to me how all the authors we have of the Bible and there's one consistent story.
0: How do you explain that?
1: And I'd love, man, if you take me up on this offer, let's just get, get together and just start reading the Old Testament together. If you like, John, man, I really don't believe you. Like, how's the Old Testament about Christ? Let's just get together and let's just start reading the Bible and take up the chance. and so, say, man, what you're going to see is, man, this is, this is legit. Like, The only answer is that this is the Word of God. That there was a divine hand in all of the authors leading to one story. One of the best things you can do to somebody who's contemplating following Jesus is say, take this Bible and start reading it. And just ask a certain set of questions as you read it. We like to use the seven arrows to help people read through and study
0: the Bible. The last one, I got to wrap up here. The last testimony. Is Moses.
1: Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another one comes in his name, you will receive me. And how is it that they reject Jesus and yet they were willing to take on other false prophets? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Get this, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Look, in case case you were questioning my interpretation of 539, Jesus makes it clear, Moses wrote about me. And I got to be quick here, but I wish I could preach a whole other sermon on that verse. Moses knew that the purpose of the law was not to save people. What did the law do? It showed them their sin. As they continued to sin, God added more laws. And he was adding more laws so they don't just fade away into the to history of idolatry. The law reveals sin, and it prepares the way for Jesus. So you go look at all the laws about the temple and the sacrifices and everything, and Jesus is saying, that is all preparing you to see me. The story of the Pentateuch, for the most part, is not a story of success. It's a story of failure. They did not keep the law, and as a result, they faced the judgment of God. God gave the law to reveal sin, to imprison Israel, and all people under sin. It was to prepare us until God sent his Messiah, Jesus. The law was supposed to last only until faith in Christ became a reality. It was a means to a greater covenant, the covenant in Christ. Moses got it, and he was writing in And you can go back and see that he was convinced that they weren't going to keep the law, but they needed a greater covenant, and it would be the covenant that would be found in Jesus.
0: As this is stunning.
1: And there's an invitation today to understand and believe in Jesus in a way that many of the Jews completely missed it. Don't let that be your trajectory. Hear and respond to Jesus because he's not only the only one witnessing concerning these truths. In fact, all of scripture is a testimony about him.
0: Hear and believe. What's at stake? Tomorrow night, a national championship's at stake, some bragging rights and a few rings. Would Jesus. It's eternity. If
1: Jesus is God, then you should respond to Jesus as you would God. You should receive his word as the word of God. You should honor and worship him as God. You should come to him and find life. And you should lovingly and humbly plead with others saying, this is where life is found. Come and enjoy.
0: Heavenly Father,
1: I know we've heard some hard words today, some heavy words, some high and lofty claims. God, we ask that you would grant us faith to believe
0: that that we would truly experience life
1: now, this life that says there's no condemnation, this life that is the spirit-filled life with the living water of Christ in us and to have the hope and anticipation of the great resurrection life to come where there will be no more death and no more pain and no more sickness. God, would you satisfy us with these truths
0: today? And God, would you help us to
1: engage our city and the world lovingly and humbly with these truths so that they may have life.
0: We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.